Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land of the east of Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. I don't know if uh, everybody had as good a time as I did at the uh, Christmas party Friday night, but I had such a good time that I woke up, I had absolutely no voice Saturday morning. So my good friend Nida turned me on to a citron, ginger, honey, something tea years ago. And that's what this is right here because the voice gets a little gravelly and rough sometimes. Uh, Sadly for me, Yeti makes a better product than I imagined because it is nuclear hot and I just took a drink. So this should be a good time. Um. You know, I had a shock this morning when I saw the date. It's December 3rd, which means it's almost 2024. Uh, we, guys, we have 22 days till Christmas, which if you're anything like me, that means you have 20 days until you have to worry about shopping. So <clears throat> it's going to be okay. Um, that's another way of me saying that I, I hope I get my act together. And today's service is about hope but not that type of hope. That type of hope is what I would call inexpensive, or to steal a phrase from Bonhoeffer, he called something cheap grace. I would call that cheap hope. And so, you know, cheap hope says something like, I hope I win the lottery, or I hope my car doesn't break down. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I'm just saying that's different than the kind of hope we're going to concentrate on today, because that type of hope is more more game of chancy. So, God offers us a different kind of hope. He offers us a hope that's based on his reliability and his faithfulness towards us. Thank goodness it's not about our faithfulness towards him. But before we, before we get there, let's, let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord. I thank you for bringing these people here today. <clears throat> Attendance is, is no accident. And I pray that no matter where, where the people that are here today find themselves, that by, by concentrating on your word in this gathering, that when we leave, that all of us had a, have a hope that is, is deep and wide. So I pray this message, Lord, these words be yours. I pray, as my, my new friend Brian Howard 
told me recently that if Isaiah were here with us, that he would nod in agreement at the message and say, I think you got it, kid. <clears throat> but most importantly, Lord, I pray that, that you look down on us and you see this message and this church and that you would shine your face on us as we study your word. It's, uh, it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. So as Oscar said last week, or yeah, it was last week, <clears throat> Advent is a season of waiting. It's, a, it's actually a countdown for most people to Christmas. It's sort of us looking forward in anticipation to Christ's arrival, both past and future. Um, Advent teaches us to slow down. This is a busy season for most of us. It teaches us to wait, and it teaches us hopefully to savor the season that we find ourselves in. <clears throat> I'm not talking about the cultural and commercial season. I'm talking about the season of the actual God being born. And so when Jesus came to us as that, you know, I think Ricky Bobby said six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus... Um, that's not supposed to be a line in a movie. That's supposed to be something to celebrate and say hallelujah over. Um, <clears throat> and he did this, you know, leading that sinless life, and he sacrificed himself for us, preparing for us even now to return. And so we have really two advents. And it's because of these two advents, these great promises, that we have hope, and that hope grows out of faith. So my first point, and it's hopefully something we can, we can cling to for a moment, that hope is the parent of faith. Um, most of you know that I was a, a policeman forever. <clears throat> and as at the police department, we had this great definition of hope. We said that hope was postponed disappointment. It's very cynical. It's very earthly. And I don't want you to use that in a, sin, in a sincere way. But I want, what I do want you to know is that I think what the police department was telling us or what they were telling me is much like how God has seen us over the years, man is going to let him down. Man is going to let the police department down and man is going to let God down. And we've seen that throughout the ages. You know, there's this really cute scene in the movie Star Wars. I think this church is super nerdy and I'm proud of you for that. So I know you've all seen it. But Princess Leia suddenly pops out of this little R2-D2, right? And she says, Obi-Wan, you're my only hope. Now, when Princess Leia says that, she sends that movie to the other side of the galaxy, and she's putting her faith in a man that she's never met. He's, he's in a galaxy far, far away. Now, it's just a movie. It's a good movie, but I want us all to see that that kind of hope is earthly and tangible. And that kind of hope doesn't actually calm the heart. It often makes the heart more anxious. And so as Christ followers, as students of Jesus, our hope is not on some swashbuckling, lightsaber-swinging space cowboy. Our hope is in the God of the universe, the author of everything. Colossians 1, <clears throat> Paul tells us, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. I think that covers it. I sat for a while. I prayed for a moment. I tried to think, like, did he miss anything here? I think that covers it. That's every breath you take. That's every molecule in the world. That's everything out there. And so since we know something doesn't come from nothing, let there be no doubt as we go forward 
that God is the creator and ruler of everything. Now, that doesn't mean that we do nothing and he controls us like puppets. It's, there's a great mystery in there, but it does, however, mean that we as committed followers are called to know his word, understand its meaning, and be a light to other people in and around the world. And the way we do that is largely understood through the person of Jesus, the Messiah. So if we believe in Jesus and learn about him, we should hope to be like him. And if we do, so grows our faith. And as I said a moment ago, if hope is the parent of faith, so grows our hope, right? So hope in Jesus is what I would call future-oriented faith. Future-oriented because Jesus is far from done with us. Hope in him, it pulls us into tomorrow and is one, in, one of the most important ingredients in a joy-filled life. Linda and I were at a dinner party <clears throat> a while ago with some friends, some good friends, Christian friends with adult Christian kids. They're people we know and love. And that conversation we had, the most interesting and candidly the most dispiriting conversation I've had in a long time. I actually called one of those dads the other day and talked to him about this and said, hey, I'm, I'm using this example. And he said, yeah, I get it. We've, we continue to dialogue about this. <clears throat> Their kids are a little younger than ours. They're late teens as the youngest to mid-20s. And one of the couples in this group was sharing that they were having a hard time getting their kids motivated to do life. <clears throat> and for them, doing life were things like being excited about going to college, um, choosing or even preparing for a career, uh, and you know, moving out or even wanting to move out. You see, they were having this family meeting and talking about the future, and the kids told them, that essentially there was no sense in applying themselves that way because according to their friends, the earth wasn't going to survive much longer. And they, they listed reasons. They gave reasons like pollution and a virus, <clears throat> nuclear weapons in the hand of crazy people, which these are all real things. And another set of parents chimed in and said, it's nice to know it's not just us. We've been having the same conversation with our kids. So it's, it's not important how many groups of parents there were, but it wasn't that big a group. <clears throat> and that got me, it got me really thinking, because that kind of malaise, that, that, that apathy almost away from life is really dark. And what those kids are saying are things like, who cares? Why should I even try? Why would I bring kids into a horrible place like this? And those things might seem extreme to some of us, but if you look at the, the birth rate, even among Christians, or at least people who claim the mantle of Christianity, you'll see that it's going down. And I think that's evidence that maybe a generation is clinging to the wrong types of hope, that they've be, they're beginning to lose their hope, and at least <clears throat> they're losing hope that goes in the right direction. So our, our second point here is hope, is hope is what you put your faith in. Golly, that's hot. I'm telling you, five taste buds are gone every time. <clears throat> so hope is what you put your faith in, though. I, I can't, like, I can't, and I have talked to those kids, and I can't invalidate their fears. 
things like a virus and things like nuclear weapons and things like pollution, those are, those are real things. They seem real to me too, but I can say that the real and ultimate hope should point us past those things because those are earthly. And as belief in God in our culture seems to be going down, or it seems like we're failing, or at least our young people are failing to ask some basic questions. The basic questions when I was a kid were, how did I get here? Do we honestly ask ourselves that question anymore, or do we, do we talk to our young friends, our young people, and say, hey, how do you think you got here? Do we ask them, what's, you're here, so what's your purpose? Do you have a purpose? Do you have a destiny? And lastly, we, we ought to be talking to them and asking them, where do we go when we die? There's a whole group of people out there that socialists, social scientists, sorry, call the nuns. And those are people that are just sort of ambiguous about life. And it's the nuns that I think a group like this can really affect, really look out there to, really embrace, and maybe even disciple and lift up a little bit. Because the nuns, they don't say there is no God, but they say, meh, okay, so there's a God. And they don't ask those three or four important questions. And if they do ask them, they don't wait long enough to actually get an answer. So as society, as culture around us seems to be getting more cynical and depressed, I just want you to know I'm, I'm not saying that this is easy. I'm, I'm, we all have moments of despair. My goodness, our own little family has had some significant sadness and despair recently. But I just want you to know that that's a piece of a bigger cosmic puzzle. And the most important piece of that puzzle is someone that, that refers to himself in Scripture as the cornerstone. We all know him as Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I'm excited to celebrate his birthday. It is a celebration. I know in our home, we have uh, another set of kids living with us, and we're, we're, we're blessed and joyed, overjoyed to have that. And so we have three little kids living in our house again. And every morning sounds different. The pitter-patter of little feats, the little, the little laughters, Toilet overflowed this morning and came through the ceiling. So lots of cute little joys, right? Yeah, don't use my microwave for a while. I'm just going to throw that out there. The water from the toilet went right into the microwave somehow. And then, yeah, anyway, <clears throat> I digress. But so Christmas morning, we'll have, as is our tradition, typically a birthday party for Jesus. We'll have a cake. We'll talk about him. We'll light a candle, potentially. We'll sing. And it's a nice, cute little celebration. We want to focus, especially the little ones, off of the commercialism that we deal with. And so in that fun, in that excitement that I have, I also you know, would want to point out, though, that Christmas was birthed in the midst of great grief. And I know that's not something we tend to think about. But you know, while the angels were proclaiming peace on earth... While Joseph and Mary were enjoying the birth of their son, Herod was preparing to annihilate all male children under the age of two. So what for us is a celebration, it's because we can look past that, we can look around it. But for a lot of people, they still sit in that pain in the memory of those moments. And so hopefully at the end of this, 
we'll take our hope and we'll recognize there's two directions for hope. They don't have to both be bad, but one is always good. Christmas joy is focused through and around the pains of life and on the incredible history of, of God becoming a man to rescue us from a condition that we just can't seem to get away from, and that condition is called sin. So at Advent, we tend to focus on the birth of the Savior, right? We all have the calendars, whatever's in your calendar. You know, for some people, it's a piece of chocolate. For some people, I don't know, something else. And that's all true and right, but we have a dual focus that points us to the future when Jesus will come back for his people. So Advent is that two-pronged holiday. And the present is not always comfortable, but it's good because it points us to that future that's full of hope. Part of the human condition, as I see it, is wanting to belong to something bigger than ourselves. I think we typically all have that yearning, right? And if that something bigger is not God, we'll typically replace him with something, something else, something clearly weaker, since God is all-powerful. I'm not sure if you're familiar, there's a post-apocalyptic writer named G. Michael Hopf who has this really chilling quote. And the quote says, Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. Now, if true, I think we might be in good times heading towards hard times. And I think the only reasonable, responsible thing to do is to talk about it and not be surprised by it. So one of my favorite authors and one of the people who I think does that sort of thing really well is a guy named Timothy Keller. He recently passed. And in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he dissects and analyzes, we all know idols of the heart, we've talked about that in this church at length, but he also analyzes counterfeit gods. And he warns us that many in our culture have these little g-gods buried deep within us, so deep that we don't even know that they're there. And his, his quote that I pulled out of that book says, uh, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. So central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. And the four main things he identifies as counterfeit gods in that are comfort, approval, power, and control. Now he calls them counterfeit gods because in those four things where so many put their hope, bless you. <laughs> if, so if your hope comes from where you put your faith and you put your faith in things like comfort or approval, then what happens when that falters? In a group this size, I don't know, I haven't counted, but I'm guessing 50 to 60 tonight, someone recently has had their heart broken. Somebody recently has had a friend betray them. Somebody has had an employer say, we don't really need you anymore. And when that happens, if that person or that job site is where you got your need fed, it's where you got your heart nourished, it's going to have an overly large impact. 
I'm on the board of directors of a 501c3 dedicated to uh, improving police officers' marriages through the message of the gospel. And one of the most common complaints I hear from the wives of the officers is that the officers have made their job the most important priority in their life. Oftentimes these wives will tell us, especially if they have children, that they feel lucky to be in the top five of their officer spouse's lives. And so I take these officers, sometimes one-on-one, sometimes in groups, and I ask them, is being a policeman who you are or what you do? And I wish I could tell you that they always get the answer right. You'd be shocked how many times they get the answer wrong. So the church, us, we're not built on comfort or ego or any of those other things that Keller identified. The church is built on unshakable, unwavering hope of a future with Christ. And it's this hope, a future with Christ, that you can count on. So the prophet Jeremiah said that the Messiah, a king from the line of David, was coming in Jeremiah 23. The prophet Micah said a Messiah would come from the town of Bethlehem in Micah 2. Isaiah said that a child would be born a virgin in 714. So we're told that he was coming, and he did. We have documentation. We have evidence. We have proof that he's here. Now, conservatively, Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. And so today, I just want to go through one of them real quick. And it's only a piece of a prophecy. So that's where Isaiah 9 comes in. Some people refer to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, or the scroll of Isaiah, as the fifth gospel. And that's because next to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it carries some of the best news and gives the greatest hope of all the books in Scripture. And this hope that Isaiah points to is the key to real and true hope. And where there is true hope, there is true joy. And see, I I don't want to tell you God's not interested in your happiness because I don't want to make it sound like he's against it because he's certainly not. But what God's really interested in much more than your happiness is your joy. And so I'm going to go into a little detail because so many, at least this is how I think, and, and forgive me for taking you down my rabbit trail, but so many of these important figures in the Bible sort of become a caricature to me. And it's easy to discount them as real people. And so I want you to know things like Isaiah was a real man. He had a wife, and he had at least two sons that we know of. And he had some crazy important contemporaries. He literally spent time with Samuel and Micah. Now, can, can you imagine that hangover a cup of coffee in the morning? Samuel says, guys, last night I had the most amazing vision. And Micah says, you had a vision. Listen to you hear this. And Isaiah said, your books are tiny. Wait till you read mine. Right? So I want you to know, that's my way of saying that Isaiah was a lot like you and me. He's famous, he's known, he's respected because he listened to and was faithful to God always. In chapter 1 of Isaiah, he tells us that he received these visions during the reign of four different kings, and he names them, and the last two of those kings are Ahaz and Hezekiah. 
And as I mentioned before in chapter 7, Isaiah meets with Ahaz, and Ahaz is identified as a bad king, and he tells this bad king who's basically testing him. He's like, eh, no, don't worry about it. Ah, we're good, we're good. And Isaiah says, hey, you better mind your P's and Q's. I'm paraphrasing terribly. You better mind your P's and Q's. And as a sign, watch for this sign, a virgin is going to have a baby, and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God's with us. So Ahaz is, whoops, he's gone. Hezekiah is now on the scene. And Hezekiah is a good king. And I, don't, I know a lot of you weren't here, but last summer we did a, a, a teaching on Psalm 46. In Psalm 46, the title of that is God is Our Refuge. And Psalm 46 is basically kind of this story. It tells a story where the prophet Samuel, and Isaiah is there in the wings, speaks to the good king Hezekiah as the Assyrian army has surrounded the city, threatening to kill and destroy. And there was another prophet there with Hezekiah, Samuel, as it was mentioned. And so Isaiah 9 is part of that same story. So we have the same evil Assyrians. Um, We have the same good king, Hezekiah. Go Lord of the Rings in your minds a little bit if you need to, because that's the image I want you to see. I want fortresses and desert and rocks and scary people outside and good people inside that castle, and they're frightened and they don't know what to do. But Psalm 46 is about God's mercy and protection, and that's the battle where God sends an angel. One angel, after Hezekiah listens to Isaiah and does what he says, one angel kills 185,000 Syrians in one night. And the, the bad king, the leader of the Assyrians, leaves with God's people un, untouched. And so this passage in Isaiah 9 Isaiah stands there, and he can see the gathering Assyrian storm on the horizon. Because the Assyrians are marching in a specific direction, and they're, they're, they're taking over and terrorizing God's people. And so the norm, northern kingdom of Israel is about to be crushed by them. And God is going to let that happen because of their rebellion. Because they refuse to listen to him. They refuse to be faithful. But Isaiah, he has great hope. He has hope for Judah and the family of David ruling in the southern kingdom. And he tells us this in verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. So many people I talk to tell me that oh, this Old Testament stuff's tough. It's kind of like it's out there and it's even a little boring. And I'm telling you, if you want to really like dig into it and have fun, if you don't have kids, pretend you do and stand up and read it to them in different voices. And suddenly you will go straight Lord of the Rings with a lot of this stuff. It's really amazing, rich, deep story. And so in that verse, is it still up there? Excellent. The he in this is God. So if you can see it, the he is God. And the nevertheless is a pivot from a defeat we'll talk about in just a moment. Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, are, they're at the northern tip of Israel. And so they're the first areas conquered by the Assyrians. Imagine, 12 lands. Two of them now have fallen. Isaiah and Hezekiah and all of his buddies, Samuel, Micah, they're standing there and they're watching this 
war machine grind them down. And as the Assyrians march and conquer in a southward direction, they're merciless. And God allows this, as I touched on earlier, because his people have not listened to him. And remember, if you were here on Psalm 46, I mentioned that the Assyrians were like ancient Nazis. They were the worst of the worst. And one of the things they love to do, there, there are still images in stone of them flaying people. And what flaying means is, is while your enemy's alive, you peel the skin off of them. They would actually conquer people and cut off their noses and their ears. It should be noses and ears. Cut off their noses and ears and wear them as jewelry. So these were not like, oh, just a little sweet war you might see on, you know, TLC or something. These were vicious, vicious people. And it says there in the passage, the way of the sea, land east of the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, our former lands. Those are former lands that God's people were in control of, but the Assyrians have now taken and they've made them into districts and renamed them. And so Isaiah is just saying, you're going to get those lands back. And so with all of this nastiness in mind, what do you suppose gave Isaiah such a strong faith and hope in the future? Any ideas? I mean, it doesn't tell us specifically. It doesn't say, well, this is why Isaiah. But what I think the reason, though, is Isaiah knew his scriptures. And he knew his history. And he trusted his God. You see, back in Genesis 12, God chose Abraham after the scattering of Babylon. And he promised to make Abraham's offspring into this huge nation that would give divine blessing to all the nations. And to get to that point, God allows the people to grow. And then, again, they're disobedient, so they become slaves. And he rescues them through another prophet named Moses. And Moses brings them to the base of Mount Sinai. And there at the mountain, God asks them all to obey the terms of his covenant so that they can be his priestly representatives to all the nation. But if you know your your story there, when they cross the Red Sea the first thing they do is complain. The first thing they do is lose hope. Can you imagine walking through like walls of water on either side of you? You've got Moses, and I don't know what he looked like, but I don't imagine it was, you know, Brad Pitt. He's some old desert dude, shepherd herder, sheep herder, thank you. Um, And the first thing they do is they complain to Moses, like, oh, well, where's the food? And then a little later, well, at least the Egyptians gave us onions. What kind of thing is that? I mean, I love a good onion, but stop. And so they lose hope immediately, and they continue to fail and fail and fail. And so after many years of failure, God raises up a royal leader named David. And David, he's a great king. He's a man after God's own heart, as we know, but he also has his own failures. And so God promises through his prophets that the ideal leader, the perfect leader is coming, and he's going to come from the line of David because David just can't get it right. And so Isaiah knows this. He's waiting, he's looking with great hope, and he writes in verse 2 through 5, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You've enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you, and they rejoice at harvest time as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressors, just as you did on the day of Midian. 
for every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. So we're going to mine that passage real quickly. And most services I've been to, they don't include those passages. And maybe that's okay. I don't know. I'm not here to pass judgment on that. But I I wanted to include those passages, one, because they're right up next to the passages that we know so well. And they're not less important. They're just as important. I mean, we could have done a whole study on Isaiah today, but we don't have time. And y'all would definitely get a good nap if I was up here doing it. So as we mind that passage, if your Bibles are open, and I hope they are, um, and if they're similar to mine, chapter 8 has a heading that says, The Coming Assyrian Invasion, which is why they're waiting in darkness. And that's the pivot, nevertheless. That's the pivot mentioned earlier. You see, Isaiah is talking about this darkness on them because of their unbelief and unwillingness to follow the Lord. But he pivots to the future when a light has dawned. And what Isaiah is doing is he's describing in past tense Israel's glorious future. Does that make sense? He's describing in past tense Israel's future. You might say he's doing, I don't know, prophety stuff. And this is when the Lord will return the light to their dark and give them reason for joy using harvest time and excess spoils. That's what that part means. It's like excess spoils as examples. And then it says, for you have shattered their oppressive yoke. And I mentioned how wicked the Assyrians were, but one of the other things, one of their favorite tools was they loved to take their captured enemies and they would take the yoke from the cattle, from the oxen and other farm animals, and they would put the leaders, their captured leaders in those things, and they would parade them around town and they would whip them and mock them for everybody to see to let no doubt be had that they were the, the, the winning army. And so Isaiah here is trying to tell them something of a near future and a far future. And he's telling them that rough times are coming, but those rough times will be temporary. So don't lose hope because good times, joyful times, are coming down, downstream. So I feel like that was a lot. It didn't seem like a lot when I was writing it, but I feel like that was a lot. So hopefully you're tracking with me. But to get to the good, the bottom line here is to get to the good, we often have to get through the bad. And God's people, we're God's people, we can endure because we know one is coming. And it's interesting he, here, he says, one is coming like Midian. And Midian, so if you think, Midian is the town where the story of Gideon, who is a man of small faith, takes place in Judges 6 and 7. And in that story, the Lord insisted on reducing the size of Gideon's army. It started at 32,000. Then God got rid of two-thirds of them, brought it down to 10,000, and God told Gideon, still too many. And he gives them this weird test with drinking water. And ultimately, God says, I'll take these 300. So God took 300 men and defeated the Midianite army of 135,000 men because God said, with such a small number of men for me, nobody can make the mistake of thinking the victory came anywhere else. So God wants you to know when you put your faith in him, he can do anything. In one night, as mentioned in Psalm 46, 185,000 people were wiped out by one angel. In one night, 
in the town of Midianite, or in the, the geographic area of Midianite, God basically defeats 135,000 Midianite soldiers and Amalekite soldiers with 300 men. And so God tells Isaiah that in the future, he'll do the same again. And the next time when he does this, it's going to be forever. And then the last verse, it's not a throwaway verse. It says, Lord reigning as king on earth will bring lasting peace by bringing an end to war itself. I know it may not read like that the first time you see it, but it says the implements of war will cease to exist and God will basically use them for fire. They're just of no value. War is not going to be a thing in his future kingdom. Because, and then this is the verse that we know. This is the verse that we see on Christmas cards at secular stores like Target who sell other, other ridiculous things. This is the verse that says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That's the money verse. Money verse. A baby will be born for us. Not those people out there. Not those people over there. His followers. Us. For all of us. A son will be given to us. And when somebody gives you something, I know we're coming up on a certain day. When somebody gives you something, what do we call that? A gift. So this gift will have the government on his shoulders. Now kings, all sorts of kings, were said to carry the kingdom, including the government, on their shoulders. That's not an unusual line. Kings back then often claimed some form of deity. But to make sure this sticks, or as my young friends would say, slaps, Isaiah also throws in... I'm working it. Isaiah throws in wonderful counselor. What's that mean? That means he's profound. He's wise. If King Solomon was the wisest man to ever live, King Solomon's nothing to this guy. He calls him mighty God. What is a mighty God? A mighty God is powerful. He calls him eternal father. So he's, he's profound, he's wise, he's powerful, Eternal Father, he's personable. He's relatable. And eternal means he's forever. None of us have perfect earthly fathers. Some of us have good ones, some of us don't. This is a perfect father. And then he calls him Prince of Peace, which means he and his reign are peaceful. No strife, no war, no anxiety. No worrying about, ooh, it's late at night. Maybe I shouldn't go to that store right now. I don't know about you, but when I read this, that baby sounds amazing. And then he, he describes what this baby is going to control. He says his, the dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He's talking about his kingdom. He'll reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So from 
my first line about slaps, I wasn't sure how that was going to be received, and I got a, I got a giggle. So uh, I say, don't, don't be shook. It, it's not going to be a soft launch. Jesus is coming, and he's coming to slay. So we'll see, we'll see how that goes. I tried, Chris. I'm sorry. <laughs> I had to Google half of those terms. <laughs> so I, you, some of you don't know this, but I've been called a boomer a couple of times in recent history, and like it hurts a little bit because I need you to know I'm, I'm Gen X 1.0. Like this is, you know, I'm not a boomer, but that's okay. I love boomers. My parents are boomers. So anyway, back to the text. So this king from the line of David, he's going to have a huge kingdom. It'll be prosperous forever. He'll rule with justice and righteousness. And then the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. The Lord of armies, different translations handle it a different way. The Lord of armies is another way of saying God and, uh, I'm sorry, the Lord of hosts, or it also is like saying God in all of his kingdom. And they're in total control. So back to Star Wars. Jesus is our only hope. Sorry, Obi-Wan. Not even close, bro. Really cool. Love the way you swing the lightsaber, but not close. You see, Isaiah's great hope, where he's placed his faith, pointed forward to two things simultaneously. Because remember, Isaiah is 700 years before the birth of Christ. So he's pointing forward to two things. He's pointing to the birth of a child from the line of David, And he's pointing towards a conquering king to protect and prosper with his people in justice and righteousness. And so that first advent, you might say, was about 2,000 years ago. And it's the second advent that we're waiting for now. We're living, as Chris has taught us, we're living in the here and the not yet. Jesus has come, but he hasn't come for us permanently yet. My young friends from the dinner party that night, they're momentarily taking their eyes off the prize. And because they take their eyes off that prize, they're losing hope. And I'm not, again, these are some of our best friends. These are good people. I'm not down on them. This is a generational thing. And I'm not saying it's universal, but I'm saying in this little group, it affected them. And so I want you to know that we all have moments of despair. Maybe they were just having a bad moment of despair. I'm not saying that's their outlook for all of life. But in that moment, that's how they were thinking. And, you know, it's funny because God often uses those moments to point us back to him. You know, the Bible calls it different things. But one of the things it says is it's being smelted through a fire. It's being processed. And we don't want those times of being smelted. We don't want those times of pain and anguish to be for nothing. So if, if you read your Bible, and I hope you do, you'll see joy everywhere. You kind of have to look for it sometimes, but you'll see it everywhere. And even in some unexpected places. And an example that came to mind In Acts, a group of apostles are flogged. That means they were basically arrested and beaten with these crazy-looking things with leather straps and chunks of glass in them and literally had the skin ripped off their backs. And then they were ordered not to talk about Jesus. They were flogged because they were followers of Jesus and talking about Jesus, and they were beaten and told, don't you do this anymore. And they get let go, bloody, and what do they do? They rejoice 
Scripture tells us they rejoiced that they were counted worthy enough to be treated shamefully on behalf of Jesus. And of course, they didn't shut up. They didn't stop talking. Now, most people in our world would say, that's crazy. And people who are a follower of Jesus might even say, that's a little crazy. But I think we get it. If we truly embrace that Jesus is our Lord, if we truly put him at the top, at the forefront of everything, what won't we do to honor him? So real people like Tim Keller and the prophet Isaiah, they help us to see that the hopes of this world are incomplete and will never satisfy our dark, wicked hearts. Biblical hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward in anticipation of his return. Human hope is an optimism. It's based on our desires. I hope my car doesn't break down. I hope I win the lottery. But hope in Jesus is confidence in God to bring about a promised future. And if Jesus fulfills over 300 prophecies so far, man, you ain't seen nothing yet. So the scriptures, they're filled with the gift of hope, grace, and mercy through Jesus. And countless people have accepted that hope. And so I, there's this passage in 1 Peter that it's just big, and I just love it. So Peter, remember, the disciple of Jesus. So he's, Jesus is his Lord, but Jesus is his friend, which had to be a really interesting dichotomy some days. And Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and not into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You're being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We have a living hope. Peter knew him personally in a tangible way. But he tells us, though you have not seen him, he's real. And because of Jesus' resurrection, we're going to follow him because he's prepared a place for us. It's called an inheritance. It's of something stores up a gift at the end of a time that you come into. And so we, as God's people, were guarded, kept safe by his spirit for our entrance into that kingdom. Now, I know life may be tough here. And I guess I would appeal to you, live through the toughness but try not to get too focused, too fixated on that earthly hope. And don't ever forget that we have a heavenly hope 
And hold strong to Jesus because he's going to hold on to you even more strongly. Peter, the disciple, don't forget, he's the one that as Jesus is basically being dragged away and being unjustly tried, Peter denied his bestie three times. I don't know him. I don't know what you say, woman. Peter denied him. But Jesus came back and lifted him up. He did, not Peter, he did not let Peter sit in that shame overly long. So Peter knew suffering, he knew pain and agony, and yet he had great hope because he knows that no matter what this earth throws at him, no matter what foolish thing he might have done, that Jesus is for him. We just need to turn to Jesus acknowledge our foolishness, and ask him for forgiveness. And so the salvation of our souls, it's safe in eternity with this guy that we know as a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an eternal father, and a prince of peace. And I, I feel like some of this might have been a little intangible or esoteric for some of us, and I get it. So I want to address a few things because this message, the goal is for you to leave here knowing that we have great hope in a great God. And so I know that for many of us, this, this is a rough season. The constant cheer and reminders of things that should be can often make things feel worse. And so I want you to know that if you feel alone, or if there's something or someone in your life or in your thoughts that's tormenting you and has you feeling hopeless, it's not right, and I'm sorry. Because each one of you in this audience, each person out there in the entire world, I don't care what country they live in, I don't care you know, what rock you find them under, they are made in the image of God and they deserve to be treated like it. Jesus himself tells us that. So I, I'm not saying, hear me right, I'm not saying you deserve comfort or approval or power or control. Those things are really nice, but none of us deserve them. If we have them, they're gifts of a grace-filled, merciful God but I am saying that you are deeply loved. You're loved by us as brothers and sisters, and of course you're loved by God who honored us above all other creation by making us in his image. And so I'm saying these things alone should give you hope, hope that even though this world seems to constantly let us down and cause us pain, he, the creator of the universe, has something much bigger and much better planned for us. He's proved it before beyond a shadow of a doubt. When he came, came to this earth, God came to earth in flesh in the form of Jesus, and he allowed himself to be strung out, strung across a tree. And he did that for you. Not you collectively, you individually. He did that for each one of you. And so in that act, he showed the great value he has for you as a person. It's an incomprehensible act of love, 
but it was really just the beginning because he's coming back for us. It's promised in Scripture. Isaiah told us about it. He's not been wrong yet. So many other prophets have told us about it. And most importantly, Jesus told us about it. So if you're feeling lost, if this is a tough season for you, if you feel like you don't have hope, if you feel like you're the only one, if you feel alone, call somebody. You're not. And if you're not sure who to call, call me. Call Oscar. Look around this church. There's a lot of leaders here, male and female. Call one of them. King's Cross is a good resource for people that are hurting. And honestly, if you, if you come to me with a problem that's too big, we'll find some place for you to go. We'll, we'll bring professionals in. We'll do whatever you're willing to do because we're family. We're all made in the image of an amazing God. There's no rock that he won't lift up for you. So we should all have hope. It's a beautiful season. And we should really have hope because Jesus is not done with us. He loves us, and he's excited for us. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.